that, we are going to kick off into kind of talking first about our theme for this year, which is Kingdom Vision. Uh, and again, we are kind of launching this as a uh, year. We thought September's a good time. Uh, ben is right in January. No one's very keen on it. In particular, I noticed in January, people are on holiday, so they're not even in church when I launched the vision. So we're like, okay, well, let's, let's move it back to September when the students have arrived yet, but students don't come until October. And to be fair, we know students are only here for like three years, and then they leave, so... You guys are the ones we really care about. And so uh, we're introducing this kingdom vision to you. Now, um, I, I want to start off by just sharing you, with you a picture of uh, myself as a child. Um, as you can see, I was probably four. <laughs> thanks for the pity awe. I will take that. Um, I, I was about four years old. And if you know something very distinct about me, not that I have the traditional Chinese rice bowl haircut, but I'm wearing glasses. So I, was, I started wearing glasses by the time I was four years old, and I, um, I've been wearing them for a long, long time. So uh, now this is a cute picture of me. Now I thought you should see me a little bit later on where I'm less cute, um, more delightful. I, I do also want to point out I have the almost exact same hairstyle, and the glasses are very similar, but no longer plastic. Okay, so... Um, in other words, I'd worn glasses for the bulk of my life, and actually my eyesight was pretty bad. So my eyesight was up to 875 in one eye and 825 in the other eye, which is um, not legally blind is minus one, right? So minus 1,000, not minus one. So I wasn't quite there yet, but it was bad enough so that like, if I took my glasses and I woke up in the midnight and I wanted to know what time it was, I'd either have to put the watch like right up to my face. Um, oh, just activated Siri. Sorry about that. Um, or else, uh, secondly, I'd have to just try to wave around to find out what time it is. The worst other thing is like if you're in the shower and you don't know which one is the shampoo and which one's the soap because yeah, you just can't see. Um, so I would just wear my glasses into the shower. I don't know if any of you guys do that. For those of you with really bad eyesight, you just have to. Um, so now the thing with um, bad eyesight is uh, when things are blurry, you can kind of get used to living with slightly bad vision. Like, I knew glasses were expensive, so sometimes my eyesight needed new glasses, but I didn't want to go buy them. I didn't want to make my mom go with me and complain, because I always end up with glasses like this. So I'd be like, let's just stick with these. And I would settle for worse vision or worse eyesight. I think the same thing for us. Now, spiritually, God wants us to have kingdom vision. He wants to see the world the way he sees. He wants us to understand his kingdom the way he does. But we settle. We settle for, like, blurry vision. It's like watching a whole movie blurry. The sad thing is, I think for a lot of us, it's like we are watching our whole life blurry. It's unfolding. We're, we're unsure. We don't feel strong connections with people. And we're just kind of wandering and meandering through things. We're just trying to get there to the end, which we think is retirement. And even then, you don't know what you're going to do afterwards. Um, kingdom vision is really saying, oh, see, God, I, I want you to hone. I want you to fix my vision so that I can see clearly. Um, and it's amazing. So I will also let you on another secret. I had laser eye surgery. So before I moved out to this country, my parents said, okay, you, you are not very good with your eyes. You've been sleeping with your contacts in. That's not very healthy. So before you move to the UK, uh, we want you to get laser eye surgery. This is LASIK. It was still pretty early on. There weren't long-term studies done on the negative repercussions of it. So now I can say to you, don't get LASIK. There are new techniques which are probably better. Um, but anyways, so uh, I went and uh, I got laser eye surgery. And I went in and I signed these forms. And while I'm signing the forms, I'm reading them. They're like, oh, uh, you can't sue us. There's all these things. And the person asked me, do you want to get both eyes done at the same time or just one? I said, well, I'll just get both done because I'm here, right? Like, I said, okay, uh, just to let you know, if we mess up on one, uh, you, you could go blind. And so that's why sometimes people do one eye at a time so that, you know, you would just be blind in one eye. 
But if you're doing both, you might be blind in both eyes. But the percentage is really low. It's like 1%. So I said, oh, okay, well, I guess I should do it now because I'm leaving to the UK and I better have, have this out. So I did to both eyes. I went home to my parents and said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I told my mom, yeah, it's only like 1% uh, like failure rate. And my dad said, oh, yeah, yeah, 1%. Yeah. I said, that's not high. He said, it's not high unless you're the 1%. That's 100% bad. <laughs> I was like, so do you want me to do this or not? I, I can't tell. So I went back. I got laser eye surgery. And uh, the day of the surgery, I'm sitting in the office. And uh, they, they, I don't know why I didn't pay attention to this before. But they actually show a video uh, of what the surgery looks like. And so I had no idea what I was in for. But apparently, they just put some uh, just eye drops to, nerve, to numb your eyeball. Then they stick this thing on. And then it's an automatic cutting tool, which automatically slices like the, the, your, your eyelid open and your eyeball open. And then you flap it open. And they shoot lasers at it. And then they flap that back down. And then it just naturally heals back up. So I watched this video and I said, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this anymore. That's too late. Now, what does this have to do with anything? And now I forgot to neglect this morning to explain why I talked about laser eye surgery. So... There's great risk, actually, in getting laser eye surgery. And actually, in our walk with God, there is great risk, too. Um, like, sometimes, if you really want to have clear vision, there is risk involved. Um, and in this case, actually, as opposed to this case where uh, I had to get my eye shot, you know, God actually paid the bulk of the risk. But for us, the risk is saying, actually, I, I trust you in this. For me, it was I had to trust the doctors knew what they were doing. And, yeah, it was my mom's friend, a Chinese doctor, not a Chinese doctor, okay, uh, like a legitimate doctor. Uh, and he was like, okay, well, we'll go this way and we'll have a look. And um, in your own life, in your own spiritual life, you have to say, okay, God, um, you know, Jesus, I trust you. I will take a risk and I will follow you. And that's part of saying, if I really want to have kingdom vision, if I really want to live this life for you, I am going to risk my own life so that I can see things clear. Um, as you can tell, uh, after my laser eye surgery, it was 100% successful, and now I don't need glasses at all, no. Uh, what happened was, my eyesight went from minus 825 to minus 25, which is amazing, because I could see things, like I could drive without glasses, I didn't have to wear glasses on my wedding, it was so good. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering now, but Bert, I can see you wearing glasses now, is this a fashion thing to make you look older? No, actually, a few years later, uh, the eye phone was released, and uh, it contributed to the rapid redecline of my eyesight, because you spent a lot of time doing this. Okay, so uh, a tip for you, if you do decide to get some sort of corrective surgery for your eyes, treat them well, okay? Don't spend a lot of time looking at things in close distance. Okay, so that is a brief kind of look at kingdom vision. To summarize that, kingdom vision is, first of all, having a hope of God's kingdom. Asking God, what does the picture of your kingdom look like? How do we have a greater hope in that so we don't get overwhelmed by the cynicism or the darkness or the hopelessness of this world? The second part is actually seeing the world with God's heart. Really saying, okay, God, now that I have a picture of your kingdom, show me what that means so that I can love the world around us. Because as your citizens of your kingdom, I want to share that love around us so that other people can see clearly this world around us as well. Over the course of the year, we'll be unpacking that a little bit more. Some weeks we'll unpack it more. Other weeks we'll be talking about just other sort of different topics. Um, but we really want to say this year, uh, for your own life, say, God, I, I really, that's what I really want. If I could come away with this year with something, God, I want to see clearly. I mean, for the first time in my life, I want to see clearly you. I want my spiritual life to be clear. Um, and so with that, we're going to kick off with today's thing. And the first question that we have to ask, and we're going to be discussing through this series, uh, is what is God's vision of his kingdom? Trying to understand and see what God's 
intention was was the kingdom. And of course, the best place to start is to let's start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start. You know, when you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. Right. So uh, at the very beginning, where we're going to start is Genesis, but we are actually not starting from Genesis 1. We are starting from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, of course, is the creation story. Uh, it is beautiful. It is poetic. Uh, it is categorized in such a beautiful, rhythmic way, where the world is created in seven days. Um, and there's this beautiful arc and uh, beauty to God's order and design and this majesty to it. But we're going to pick up in Genesis 2 where we are introduced to a more specific kind of moment of God's creation of humanity in this more kind of precious way, especially with Adam and uh, later on Eve. And what we're going to be looking at in particular is in Genesis 2, it's a look at paradise. So if we're asking God, what does your kingdom look like? We start by saying, okay, well, what if we knew that his intention, this paradise, like that was supposed to be his first kind of kingdom, right? Like, what can we learn from that space? What can we learn from how he created this to understand what his original intentions for humanity was? Because that helps us understand, oh, that's what you hoped for us. And because of Jesus, that's how we can live now. It actually starts off, and we, I want to start off with, uh, with starts off with man, actually. Um, and uh, in verse 5, it picks up, it says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there is no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, this is a very precious moment because uh, where the other animals, he doesn't talk that much about it. In the poetic part in Genesis 1, he says God spoke and they were created. Um, here, he's, he's elaborating a little bit more, right? God formed the man out of the dust of the earth. In other words, his elements were still uh, from the natural world around us. So he forms them. But then he does this thing where he breathes life into this man. Now, this is important, and this is distinct, because God is saying, yes, I've created all these things, but I want to I focus and I want to explain to you why humanity is different than anything else. You are not just an animal. Though there are biological similarities, because you're still made from the same kind of dust of this earth, there is something unique and precious about humanity. And what it is, is that you have this life, this deeper life, this spiritual life. God's breathing in this person is saying, God's own person, his own spirit, he's breathing that life into us. This is so crucial for us to understand because it means that we are not just animals. In, in modern society, I think uh, there's this kind of tendency to try to say, well, humans are just another form of animals. So whatever animals do, you can do as well. Uh, you can treat yourself in whatever way you want, uh, because that's what animals do. And so there's a lot of people say, well, animals have multiple partners, so we should do the same thing. Because that's, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a man with needs. I, I, I'm so women, I was a very sexist kind of thing. But anyways, you know, there's this thing where we almost, it's degrading what God's desire and intention for humanity was. With this picture, you start to understand if God breathed in us and gave us a spiritual life, there is this intention for us to have, one, a more intimate and personal relationship with God. But the other thing is that we are divinely and uniquely created. Now, if you understand that, it means the way you treat one another has to be different. Um, you can't look at another race or another person and think these aren't humans or they're subhumans. Now, this is, this is hard to do. Um, so sometimes when I look at criminals and I think about, like, this, this is a horrible person. And it's very hard for me to try to see how you can love them or how this person might have any semblance of God still in them. The challenge for me is always to ask God, um, could I still love this person? 
could I still forgive them? In the same way is to say, could, that end up, could I end up like that too? When I start to realize, okay, maybe some circumstances might push me over the edge, and I hope that never happens, but when I begin to understand, actually, I am just as fragile as a human as anyone else, that makes me cling on and desire God's breath in life even more. To make me say, well, actually, God, if I am so precious, if I am so spiritually made and divine, then let me yearn for that more so that I don't end up going off the rails. But at the same time, let me love those who are different than us. Now, in particular, I, I think in our, in our context here, uh, it's very easy for us to just kind of stick with people that we like or people that we know. Um, and that's important. You need to have friends. You need to have community around you. But it's another thing to start saying, well, how do I still treat and honor people who are different than me? Um, whether it is a different faith or a different culture or a different background or a different way they speak, um, and start understanding, well, they are still precious and wonderfully made too. I always think sometimes being an immigrant in this country, um, I am an immigrant because I have moved here and I'm from America, um, that I still don't totally fit in. Uh, partially it's because I only hang around like church people, so it's not, I, don't, I don't have to engage that much with the normal kind of world, except on school runs. And I'm trying, I'm trying really hard to start becoming more open to talking to, to moms and, and their kids and the one or two dads on their phones. And I'm learning about how to talk about football and catch up on the sports and things like that. Um, and I know there's part of me who just wants to avoid them and just say, well, I'm just going to stay where I'm comfortable. Then there's a part of me that says, oh, actually, God, um, if, if I was alone in a place and I, it really bothered me, I felt, and there's something going on in my life, wouldn't I need someone to talk to me um, and engage and, and involve me and listen to me? And I thought, well, let me still try to do that to people around me as well. If we have this first picture, then, of man, and we have a picture of what God's paradise might look like, there's two words that come up um, in my head. I think they're intimate and precious. Uh, God is intimate with us. You, you see, actually, that, like, God could have just said, um, you're alive, or done a lightning bolt and shocked Adam into existence. But, but the way he describes it is, is God, like, breathed his breath into him. Like, oh, like, CPR is what you imagine, right? Like, this closeness to this. There's this intimacy that God desires to have with us. And the other thing is that we are, we are so precious to him. Now, that, that's not just from Genesis. Because of Jesus, because we have life, in, he, he has that same desire to be close to you now, to, to whisper in your ear, to walk alongside you, to be with you in every moment of your day in your life. And this is why it's so important to be able to spend time in God's word, to, to read it. It's so important to spend time um, praying because He's alive, and he's precious, and he desires to be with you. When you start to understand how close God was to us, you know, he, he birthed us into creation. It's the same thing where he's saying, well, let's continue to be close to him, to draw near to him. Don't let yourself continue to be distant. The first question that I have to ask with you guys is then, uh, are you and God close? Because if you're not, if you know, like, well, actually, I don't, I don't feel that close to God, you, you, your first prayer has to be, God, actually, I want to be closer to you. I really want to, I really want to know you better. I really want to get close to you. Um, in our life, we, we are going to find that sometimes we feel so alone or so lost or so confused or so frustrated. Um, and, and there are things going on in our, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our workplace, uh, in our health that, that's just all over the place. And you don't know where to turn to. And then you cry out those prayers of desperation. And God hears and God listens. That is fine. But one thing that God really wants is for you to have that living, dynamic relationship 
starting now. To have kingdom vision is saying, God, let me start now. Let me know how to walk with you here and now, beginning today, so that that closeness can become more personal between you and him. It's at this point that I want to turn and look at God as the passage continues. In verse 8, it says, Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. Actually, I have this here, so you can read along with me. Um, the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, here, there's this thing, right? So there's before, uh, there was land, uh, there was things. But here, he's not just saying he's creating, uh, like, just trees. What he's creating here is a garden. Now, a garden is different to just wild nature. Like, so if you go to a you know, National Trust place and like, you go out and you walk through Sherwood Forest and you look for Robin Hood and stuff like that, that's one thing. But then if you want to go to a garden, normally you have to pay money, right? You have the like Kew Gardens or someplace else you're going to this garden. And there's a big difference about it because the garden is very curated. Uh, it's very manicured. It's very taken care of. Uh, the plants there are chosen specifically to create an ambiance or a mood. You can have a Japanese garden. You can have a rose garden. You can have a, uh, I don't know, I don't know that many gardens, a bonsai tree garden, you know, whatever kind of garden. But what you see here is that God is, is deliberate. Like, he is creating a place. Like, it's not by accident. He didn't just create the whole world and say, okay, Adam, do whatever you want to do. No, he says, actually... I'm creating this place, this deliberate, specific place. And this is the next thing that I want to learn about God's paradise. One is um, that it is designed and is deliberate. Now, now I love the fact that God designed the garden. Um, There's this creativity that gets involved in this. And yet he designed humanity. But there's kind of this moment where he designs this space and there's this purpose for this garden. And it's deliberately there so that Adam can go there and be in that place. Now, if this is how God treats like us, like there's this purpose, there's this place, it makes us have to ask the question, then are you in the same way? Are you intentional with God? Do you have the same kind of focus with him that he has with you? Because, I don't know, like if I, if I love someone, you will want to provide a space for them. You want to provide what they can so they can survive. They can grow, they can flourish there. What we see here is, One, in God's picture of paradise, he wants Adam to flourish. He wants him to do well. He wants him to have this closeness with God. It's the same for us here now. He has deliberately placed you in this city. Um, The people around you, he's deliberately put you there. Um, The circumstances that you think you're in, they're not just happenstance. It's not just karma has put you here. But there's a design to these things. There's a design to you. You are precious and wonderfully made. Um, you're not an accident or a mistake. All of these things kind of point out actually God's unbelievable love for you. Our response in the same way is be, okay, God, well, in the same way, am I intentional with you? You know, if I know that you've created this garden for me, you've created this life for me, um, shouldn't I be engaging with you or paying more attention to you or spending time with you more? Um, if you really want to grow, if you really want your spiritual life to develop, if you really want to say, I have this new vision of this world, you have to start by saying, okay, God, then I need you to show me. I want you to teach me. Can you be deliberate with me? Now, I know in a lot of your workplaces, uh, sometimes uh, the, the further along you get in work, uh, if you, okay, let's start with this. When you first start a job, sometimes you don't know what's like. 
and uh, you're trying to learn the ropes, and you find out everyone in the workplace is really busy. Everyone's busy but you, and uh, you don't know what you're doing, and you're just trying to find someone to help you out, and everyone's really busy. Of course, they say, don't worry, you'll get busy too. And before you know it, you're really busy too. And you're running around doing things, and somewhere along the way, you're like, man, I wish there was someone that was there to help me, to mentor me, to kind of teach me how to do things better, because I've made so many mistakes along the way, and even now, I don't know who to talk to. And then you get to the point where you're like, oh, there's a job coming up, maybe I should go for promotion, and then you apply for the job, and you get, and then someone comes along and says, oh, you got that job, that's really great. Did you ask for more money? And you're like, oh, could you ask for more money? I didn't know. And they're like, oh, you could have. And then you're like, oh, I wish there was someone there to teach me, to help me. And there's this thing where actually God is saying, oh, hey, you know, um, I deliberately want to be involved in your life and to mentor you not for your job. I want to mentor your life, like your actual life. I want, to, I want you to talk to me so I can bring people into your life to share that experience. I want you to talk to me so that you can discover what it means to actually listen and live and learn and love. And all these things unfold. Now, if we yearn so much for a work mentor or, or for something like that, for us to know that God... Um, Apparently, the creator of the universe, almighty God, loves us so much that he would desire to mentor you in your life. Wouldn't that be more like, okay, God, please, tomorrow, uh, when I read the Bible, can you teach me? Can you help me understand this? You know, you can say, I'm not smart. I don't know how to read very well, but I believe you can help me. You know, it it is that that God is yearning for. What I've discovered is when you start praying and asking God, so you might have this expectation, well, I I showed up, I tried to read the Bible, I couldn't understand, and it wasn't even working. And then somewhere along the week, someone will say like, oh, uh, I saw this article, and I sent it to you because I thought, I was just thinking about you, and and then suddenly you read it, and you're like, oh, this really explains what I was trying to understand before. If you look in the Bible, in the book of Acts, there's a guy reading the passage of Scripture, he doesn't understand, and God sends Philip over there and says, hey, and the guy says, I don't understand this, no one explained to me. He said, oh, I'll explain to you. And the guy's like, man, that's awesome, Ethiopian you. By the way, Acts chapter 9, I think. Anyway, it's like, yeah, baptize me now. Awesome. In other words, if you are intentional with God, God will send either people to help you or he will speak to you himself to help you understand. But it's this thing where you really start asking, God, I really, I really need you. I want you to mentor my life. I want to move forward. I won't be stuck in the same loop. Now here, after this, there's a bit of an interlude. And there's this passage that shows up in the middle. So he says, uh, there's this garden. He creates this garden. And then he gives this little emphasis about this garden. And then he says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And there it's separated into four headwaters. The name, the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aramac, resin, and onyx are also there. Um, it's like, oh, these are my two other friends. I brought them as well, but they're not as cool as gold. Um, the name of the second river is called Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, um, obviously, uh, people are always trying to search, oh, where was the Garden of Eden? I'm sure it's kind of here. And a lot of people estimate that it was somewhere in that fertile crescent, partially because there's two rivers in there named Tigris and Euphrates. And so, of course, uh, that's where they say the cradle of civilization started from, all these sort of things. I'm sure it'll be turned into an Indiana Jones film one day. Um, But although we don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden was, what we do know something about this is that we do know one thing about rivers is is it always uh, symbolizes life. And what they're saying is actually God's paradise, his plan for paradise, was that the blessing that comes from this flows out to all the nations. So the idea of these rivers flowing out, saying that these four rivers, it's saying like it's four rivers to the ends of the earth. In other words, God's plan 
from the very beginning of paradise was so that his goodness would be shared with all of civilization, with all people. And there's this, there's this beauty that shows up because it's in the middle of this kind of passage where it starts off with God breathing life into mankind and then saying, I've created this deliberate kind of space. In other words, there is this heaven, there is this perfect place. But my desire is that all might be blessed from that. Might they also know that same life that is in this Garden of Eden. It's this picture, really, of this idea of blessing flowing out. Um, for us, personally, that helps us to see, yeah, actually, the life that we have here, the, the relation we have with God, we want that to flow out. We want the life of God to flow out from us. Now, from then on, we kind of move on, and now we get introduced to Adam. The Lord uh, took the man uh, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Um, And that is here. Now, if you are like me, when you read that, your first question is, oh, God made this amazing garden, and then he stuck these two trees in the middle and said, don't eat from those trees. Like, the first question I would have is, why, why do you make those trees? Why do you put them in the middle? Why do you put them outside of the garden, like in the neighboring garden, and say, oh, by the way, don't go to your neighbor's house and eat their fruit. And say, oh, cool, I understand. I won't do that. Yeah. You know, like, why does God put those two trees in the garden? And then if you're, if you're really mad at God, you say, oh, he's just trying to tempt God just tempts us. This is why he put that really pretty girl in my class, just to tempt me. You know, like, this sort of ridiculous kind of thinking, and you're trying to try to make excuses for why you fall into temptation. Now, there's two things that we learn about this passage from this. First of all, uh, and we'll get to the trees in a second. First of all, um, it says here, the Lord God took the man and put in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Like... God's intention for paradise involves work. And you're like, no, no that's, I thought that's, that, that's exactly what I don't want. I want no work. I just want to sit there and do nothing all the time. I will tell you as a fact, I know you guys, some of you may disagree with me, but actually that is not what you want. You do not want to sit and do nothing all the time because you will, believe it or not, you will do the thing that little kids say all the time. I'm bored. I'm bored. I have nothing to do. Actually, the best you feel in your life is when you work on a project or work with someone and you put effort into it. Obviously, depending on how much effort, everyone puts in the same equal kind of effort. That's fine, right? It's all cool. And at the end, there is this result. Like there is this progress. Or you feel yourself like I've progressed or there is some development. There is some joy that comes out of that work that is precious. Actually, if you know people who have not been in employment for a long time, it it is draining and they hate it. They yearn so much for work. They'd rather do something than nothing. And the people who are not, and they're stoned out of their minds, and they're just not working, they have numbed their senses to what God desires from us, that there should be this idea of work. In other words, it's not just work. It's purpose. There is a meaning to your existence that contributes somehow to the community, to one another, and to yourself. And that's what God is doing when he's saying, oh, he put this man in the garden to say, you should work and take care of it. There is something beautiful about this. It doesn't sound like it's really necessarily difficult work, but at the same time, it's not so lazy work that it's like, oh, you could just have a robot do it. There's something very precious about why God does this. Now, this is the first thing, is to help us have a purpose. The second thing is, though, why are the trees in there? Now, um, let's, say, let's say God didn't put the trees in that garden. Uh, then, you know, you say, oh, like, fine, there'd be no original sin. Oh, we find all of us would just be perfectly holy. The thing is, then they would never have this kind of choice. The trees 
they help us learn responsibility and obedience. If there's nothing there to work the garden, he just, he just works the garden. If it gets messy, it gets messy. But here, there's something very clear, very distinct that God says, don't eat these fruit of the tree. Um, this is there because you need to have a responsibility to understand what it means to be obe- obedient. The second thing is that it actually lets you have free will. It is then at this point that Adam and Eve have to choose whether or not they disobey God or whether they just you know, choose to obey him. If you don't have those trees in there, if you don't have this opportunity or this option for this, then you, you're not sure if you have free will. You're only forced into one kind of option. Um, it is where you have one path, and that's the only path. Free will is saying, well, actually, there is this option here. You have to choose to do what is right. You have a responsibility to do that. When we look then at God's paradise, and you see this, there's two things, again, that show up here. One is that there is a purpose. All of us have a purpose and a meaning. But the second thing, we all have a responsibility. And the responsibility that we have is don't sin. Don't fall for sin. Don't fall for that trap. In fact, you need to be active to say, actually, you know, God, I know one of the big things you've called us to is to be responsible. And for us here on earth, what we are learning to do is grow in that responsibility, to grow in that kind of correct choice making, because that helps us develop and helps us grow. It's where the question that we have to ask is, well, have you talked to God about it? Like, God, what is my purpose? What is the reason I'm being here? The second thing you have to say is, actually, God, what do you ask me to be responsible for now? And in particular, are there parts of my life that are sinful that I'm kind of hiding from that I need you to be responsible, that I need to be responsible for? If God has saved us from sin and he's saying, look, I've made it so that you don't have to sin anymore, you have to worry about that, our responsibility is to say, okay, well, let me make sure I walk in the right kind of way. And it's not just for his benefit or just to prove that you're a good person. Actually, the more that you walk in that right way, the better your kingdom vision gets. The better your kingdom vision gets, the more you are able to do your purpose and what God has called you to do. But the more you choose sin, the more you choose the way that, the less you're able to function as well as God desires you to. Because you're going to be cloudy, you're going to be judged. One of the big things we see is after they sin, they lose their purpose. Work becomes a toil. Work becomes painful, and that's what we have to deal with nowadays. Uh, Their relationship with one another is broken. That intimacy with God is fractured. And you see then how dangerous sin is. It's at this point that we kind of come towards the end of the passage and we look at Adam and Eve. And uh, I love the fact that right after it says, there's two trees in the garden that you're not supposed to eat, it then says, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, the responsibility to not eat the fruit was too much to bear for Adam by himself. So he needed to have someone there to help hold him accountable. And it's only with two people that you have accountability. You can't have accountability with just yourself because you're, I mean, you want to lie to yourself. You just lie to yourself. Oh, no one's going to know. I'll know, but nah, no one's going to keep me accountable. You need someone else. And this is where God says, well, he needs a helper. Now, I will take a brief pause here because I know sometimes you might read this and say, oh, why does a girl have to be a helper? Like, that's kind of really sexist. You know, like, I would like a feminist reading of this passage. Um, and uh, we think, oh, helper sounds so, like, condescending and low. Right, let me help clarify this to you. First of all, the word helper used here is this Hebrew, we call it ezer, and it's used elsewhere in the Bible. And uh, the places it's used are places like when it describes God being our helper and our strength. Okay, so we definitely know God is not like the maid who comes to clean your house, like that kind of helper, right? The God is not like, oh, would you like uh, fries with that kind of helper? No, right. When he's saying God is your strength and your helper, 
doesn't elevate its status. In other words, because you are too weak by yourself, God himself will be your help. When they're talking about women being the helper, it's not saying, oh, here's a weak and fragile person to help you clean your house and wash your dishes. No, it's actually saying this is someone who comes alongside you because the two of you together will be able to resist sin, walk in obedience, hold each other accountable. They are there because you will help each other. The other place that the word helper is also used is, uh, uh, surprisingly, it's also used later to describe the Holy Spirit, which is your helper. Again, I don't think we want to say Holy Spirit's like this weak, like timid little girl who shows up and says, oh, I'm, I'm not strong. I will just help you whenever I can. Right? It's not that. This is uh, a very wonderful and very powerful understanding of what it means that God created man and woman. There's this uniqueness and distinction, but there's also this harmony where they are supposed to kind of work together. Um, the passage goes on and says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the joke is, so the joke is, at first I thought, um, why did God create, you know, Adam had two jobs, right? Look after the garden and then name the animals. He used to name the animals. Um, but then, like, he couldn't do that. So God said he needs a helper because he can't come up with any names for the animals. So he creates a, he creates a girl. And I imagine, like, Adam's there and God's bringing the animals. He's like, cat. And another one, dog. And then he brings another one. He's like, oh, I'm out of good names, out of good names. And God said, oh, this guy's useless. Let's get a girl. And he makes a girl. Zebra. Flamingo. And like, oh. Man, you're so good at this. We know this is the case because then man, God creates, creates something out of his own flesh and he makes this person and Adam looks at him, uh, whoa, man, because like, I could not come up with a better name than uh, whoa, man. Okay, cool. So, um, but obviously we know that's not really why God created women. Okay, um, if there's, there's two things that we do see about God's paradise in this as well, is that there is community and connection. When God creates this, uh, this woman to be uh, next to Adam, he's actually saying, look, uh, God himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within that unit, there is fellowship, there's community. He doesn't need anyone else. But for Adam, being by himself, God's saying, well, I shall create someone else. You understand community. Not just uh, with the divine God, but also with one another. The second thing is that no one person is perfect. Like, they, they have their differences. They have their own kind of perspectives. And with the two of them together, they're able to help each other and to shape each other and to grow. The second thing is there's a, a connection that gets formed there. Um, now, actually, our problem is, is because of sin, because of, uh, we're not in this paradise anymore, a lot of times our community or our connections are broken. Like, you find that, oh, yeah, it's, I have friends, but I can't seem to keep my friends for very long. Or I feel like I always get really frustrated or agitated these people. Or sometimes I feel so lonely or I get so insecure. Or sometimes I talk too much. Or sometimes I feel like I have nothing to say. And you've really struggled and you're trying to figure out where you fit in. And you don't, don't know how to make these things work. And you can come to a church and sometimes you can feel connected there. And then sometimes you can feel distant. And we start discovering that actually because of sin, so many things... Um, don't work right. And a lot of that relates to our kingdom vision. We, we lose sight of how God sees things. And the question we need to ask is, has sin affected your connection with other? Now, it could be sin with someone else, like you had a fight with someone that's caused a pressure, or you've been gossiping around their back so that when you see them, it feels awkward. That might be a sin that's affected the connection. But the other thing is, there might be a sin in your own life that has caused a connection that makes it difficult for you 
to interact or to engage with people well. And one of the things that you're doing, what we're trying to ask for in this, this series is saying, God, actually, I feel like my connection with people is, is not correct. It's distorted or it's unhealthy. Um, like the relationships I've been there are toxic or I keep choosing the wrong kind of people. God, I, I need you to, to forgive me, to restore what is correct, to have me have the right perspective. God, I really need you to, to shape me so that I can first have this stronger connection with you and a great communion with you so that I can start understanding what's like around me. The second thing is you need to start saying, okay, well, in the community around me, um, I'm going to get to know these people. And I hope they're gracious with me, and I hope I can be gracious with them so that I can learn and grow out of that. Church, it's, it's really easy to just want to be in the groups where it's people that you're comfortable with. I think life is. And it's important because you do need people that you can just hang out with and be it's like very stress-free. And there are times in your life when you definitely need that. There are other times, though, you're like, okay, well, this person could really use a friend. And it's difficult for me, but I also need to try my best there's important opportunities for us to shape and be molded in those kind of places. Um, with all of this, and we're looking at this, you see that God actually desires form us so much. The, the picture of God's paradise, it has community, it has connection, it has intimacy, it has this idea that we're very precious to him. It was designed as deliberate, and God has these clear intentions with us. There's this other idea that actually God himself gives us purpose, and he gives us responsibility. Now, the question I want to leave us with before we go into worship is actually, have you lost your way? In, in your life, where you are now, if you know like you've been coming to church or you're a Christian, but at the same time, you know you're like a, I come to church and that's where I get fed Christian, as opposed to, I have a living relationship with Jesus. Like, not only do I know him, but, but I, I love talking to him. You know, like, uh, and not just that, I, I want to learn more about his word. I want to understand him more. If, if that's where it is, if, and, and you know in your own life, you're like, well, things seem out of place. Things seem out of sync. And um, uh, it's not working the way it should be. You need to say, actually, I, I'm a bit lost, God. And you need to ask him, God, can you restore my, my vision, my kingdom vision, my picture of you? Now, I'll let you in a little secret. So um, there have been times in my life when it, it gets so... Like when I was younger, in like in, in university, and I'd made all these bad decisions, and full of you know making all sorts of bad life choices, and I felt really distant from God. And people say, "Oh, well, you should just turn back to Him." I was like, "Oh, I don't know how to turn back to Him." You know, like what does that mean? Like, oh, you're just saying all these Christian terms. I'm just going to just do my own thing. Um, and I remember being really cynical and really doubtful about. It, but actually, things got so bad that I was like, "Okay, God, I actually really don't know what to do." Um, I know I pray, I say I'm sorry, but. Um, and I know that if I go and read the Bible, like, I'm sure that's what the Christians say you should do, and I'm sure that's supposed to help, but come on, is it really going to make any difference if I suddenly go and read the Bible and pray? And of course, I don't know what else to do, so the next morning I'll wake up and I'll read the Bible, and I'll pray. And miraculously, God is that good, that as soon as you turn to him and you actually say, actually, let me start reading your word, teach me. He is quick to say, yes, good. Now let me mentor you. Let me help you. That's amazing because I, you can feel all sorts of different emotions. You can be in a place where it's all over the place. But when you stop and you actually say, actually, God, let me spend time with you. It's amazing how fast he gets you back on track. And that's, that's all it takes sometimes. If you've lost your way, say, okay, well, you know what? I want to start. I want to start. 
Um, and I know I don't know how long it's going to last, but I want to start, and I need to start. And God, help me to get my kingdom vision back onto the right page. Let me start seeing clearly again. You don't want to be like me, spending lots of your time in the shower trying to figure out whether this is soap or shampoo, and then finding that, you know, everything's blurry. When you're asking God to restore your kingdom vision, you're saying, actually, God, we know things in this world are not getting better. And we know the answers to this world. You know, some might come from science, some might come from legislation. But a lot of it's going to have to come from people who really believe you, who really know you, who really understand you. And we need to start getting ready. We need to start preparing ourselves now. And what that means is not quitting your jobs and going to full-time music. What it means is start spending time with God, really asking him to hone your kingdom vision. Because time's coming where we really have to be sharp. We have to be ready. We have to be prepared for whatever this world may throw at us. Let's, let's pray as we come and worship. Lord God, um, we're, all of us are in different places, um, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Um, and it can be difficult to try to understand or know, you know what it is that you desire from us. Um, but actually, one thing that we do know, Lord, is that you love us so much. You know, you designed us. You designed a garden and a paradise for us. You breathed your own life into us. There was this amazing intention that you had for us. God, t- tonight, you know, where we want to start with is can, can you draw us closer to you? Um, if it's been a while, but can we understand how precious it is to be so intimately close to you that you are someone who knows us so deeply, so personally, so richly, that in that process you can just begin to speak your words into our lives to help clear the muck off our, our glasses so we can start seeing clearly. Lord Jesus, we look to you because you know that you are the one who conquered sin and conquered death and you are victorious. So pull us a little closer and take us a little deeper because we want to know your heart. We want to know your love. We want to know that it is greater and sweeter than anything else in this world. We thank you and come worship you now. Amen.